Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let me pray. Father, we see in this uh, passage that those in Jesus' hometown were not ready. They weren't ready to hear from him. They weren't ready to receive him. But Lord, we pray that you would give us grace this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to receive Jesus, ready to hear his words, ready to receive them. Lord, his rebukes, his encouragements. Lord, we want to meet with Christ. So may that happen. As we look at this passage, as I preach, Lord, I pray and ask for your help. Come now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last summer, the well-known British newspaper, an older newspaper, published an article that said that evangelical Christianity is quietly flourishing among migrant groups in the Arabian Gulf. So according to this article, there are some 30 million economic migrant laborers living in the, in the Arabian Gulf. That's men, mostly from South Asia, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, who have left their families and are working in countries like Qatar, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. And it's these laborers that are turning to evangelical Christianity. They are, <clears throat> there are many churches throughout the Gulf, many Christians, and they're actively reaching out with the gospel. Now, many of these laborers come from some of the some very poor areas of South Asia. Many of them come from places where there's very little, if any, gospel presence and no churches. But they're hearing about Jesus. They're drawn to him. And they're drawn to the mercy that they're seeing in Christians who are reaching out to them. Because many have suffered at the hands of their employers. 
So I've been able to see firsthand some of this over the last year and a half of living in the Arabian Gulf. I've met a number of new believers in Jesus from Hindu, Buddhist, and even from Muslim backgrounds. And many of them have come to faith through the outreach of local churches. And I've been able to go to Bible studies in the camps where some of these laborers live. They'll live 10 to 12 men in a room together. Their bunk beds will be stacked three high. And some of the Bible studies I've been a part of, we meet right in the middle of the room and read scripture, pray, and encourage one another. And there's believers there, and then there's unbelievers just sitting in, kind of watching it. In other camps, they can't meet in their room and worship, so they go out and meet in the sandy lots right around uh, at night when it's a little bit cooler. Well, I share this story this morning in part because I believe it captures a reality of Jesus' mission that was true in his own day. We see it in this passage of Luke 4, and it's true to this day. And it's this reality that often it is the outcasts, it is often in the most unlikely of places where we find people's hearts are most open to Christ, ready to receive his saving message. So let's look at this passage that I read. We're going to start looking at verses 16 through 21 and look at Jesus' identity and his mission. So yeah, if you follow along with me, that would be great. Well, the setting of today's passage is, of course, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where Luke writes he had been brought up. Now, Luke places this account of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth at the very beginning of his gospel. And I believe he does this because through what Jesus reads and what Jesus says, he makes very clear who he is and what his mission is all about. But also, in the response from the crowd, we're going to see an indication of how Jesus' mission and ministry is going to unfold throughout the book of Luke And then ultimately, as the gospel goes forth in power and bears a lot of fruit among the Gentiles captured in Acts. Now, just before the passage we read, I read from Luke 4, we read about Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. Then in the beginning of Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus returned from his baptism full of the Holy Spirit. And then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. That's chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus, then having successfully endured that temptation... He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, verse 14. And it's here that our passage begins. So we see in verse 16, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we have here this amazing window into what a church service was like in the days of Jesus. Now, it wasn't Christianity, it wasn't a church, it was a synagogue, but it's very similar to how churches are structured, ordered in today's world. There's reading from scripture, and there's a message. Now notice how Luke 
sort of puts things into slow motion here. He really slows down and very methodically takes us through a series of steps. Let me draw that out. Verses 16 to 20. First, Jesus enters the synagogue. Then he stands to read. Then the scroll of Isaiah is given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where he wants to read in Isaiah. He reads the passage. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. And then he takes a seat. Why does Luke slow this down? Why does he go through this so methodically? Well, I think he wants to draw us into the drama. Right in the middle of these steps is Jesus reading from the scripture. He wants to highlight how important this passage is. So it begs the question, what does Jesus read? Well, the reading recorded in verses 18 and 19, you can see it, is taken mostly from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And Luke 4, 18 and 19, is mostly a direct quotation from Isaiah 61. Few little changes, little things are left out. Now, interestingly, sandwiched right in the middle of this quote from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, there's also a quote from Isaiah 58, verse 6. It's the phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So we have Jesus reading from Isaiah 58, at least in part, and Isaiah 61. So Jesus here reads of a spirit-anointed individual who's going to do four things. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He's going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, we read of prophecies of one anointed by the Spirit to do God's work. Let me share two others briefly. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, we read of a Davidic son, someone in the line of David, who's going to be anointed by God's Spirit and will judge righteously on behalf of the poor. It's Isaiah 11. Then uh, later, Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read of the servant of the Lord, who's anointed by God's spirit to bring justice to the nations. And then we have Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that Luke records in, in verses 18 and 19. And we have here one anointed by the spirit who preaches and proclaims good news and sets at liberty those who are oppressed. So let's sum it all up. According to Isaiah's prophecy, the Jewish people are waiting for a spirit-anointed, Davidic son, servant of the Lord, and a preaching prophet. One who's going to save God's people and going to usher in God's kingdom. This end-time kingdom that God has promised, he's going to bring it in. And this is a salvation, a salvation from sin in all of its disastrous effects. It's not only a salvation for the people of Israel but for the poor in her midst, and even for the nations. Now, Luke's reading, his portrayal of Jesus' reading is dramatic, but the climactic point actually comes in verse 21. It's in the sermon that Jesus delivers. We have one sentence here. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So we're used, we are used to preachers in our churches standing up front, like I'm doing right now, preaching from the front while everyone else is sitting. But it's likely that in synagogues in Jesus' time, the one would read from up front and then would sit down and begin to teach. So what we have here, we have Jesus choosing his text, reading it, and then sitting down to give a sermon. And it's likely that he probably read more more of Isaiah than what is recorded by Luke, and it's likely that his message was longer than one sentence. But Luke gives us just enough to get the main point. And the main point is this. Jesus declares himself to be this spirit-anointed one, prophesied by Isaiah, who will bring God's full, complete salvation and redemption to his people, who will bring in the year of the Lord's favor. And not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So in Luke's gospel account, Jesus begins his ministry with a bang. He declares right in the midst of his hometown that he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And that he, by beginning to preach and to heal in the power of the Spirit, is actually ushering in God's kingdom right in their midst. As he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, if the truth about who Jesus is, his identity is clear, clear enough in this passage, there remain some important questions to ask about his mission. And these are controversial questions. So pray for me. I don't want to get in trouble, but there's controversial questions and hard questions that we need to ask here. So questions like this. Is the saving and transforming ministry of Jesus material or spiritual? Or in other words, is Jesus' mission and work primarily future-oriented towards God's coming eternal kingdom? It's coming at the end of the age. Or is it present-oriented about the transformation of people, nations here and now, in this present evil age, as Paul says in Galatians? There's more questions that we have as we read this text. For instance, when Jesus says that he proclaims good news to the poor, should we think about those who are spiritually poor or materially poor? Should we think about captives that he sets free as largely spirit, captive spiritually in sin or held captive in this world? And then lastly, this year of the Lord's favor, which is actually related to the year of Jubilee that Moses talked about in the law, is it primarily focused on this world, this age, and freedom and release now, or in the age to come? Well, these are difficult questions. These are contentious questions, right? And we know from experience that Christians and churches quickly answer in one way or the other. So I want to try to give a start to an answer that I see from the Bible. It's just a start, and, but I want you to wrestle with the scriptures yourself. So let me give you how I begin to answer these questions. Only a beginning. There's much more that could be said, but here I go. So I start an answer to these difficult questions with Jesus' mission statement, which is here in Luke 4, but also in Luke chapter 19, verses 10. I think it's maybe the main key verse in all of Luke. Jesus says in this verse, the Son of Man came to seek and to save 
the lost. The focus in Jesus' mission is on the salvation of individuals from their sin. Human beings, right, we're lost, not fundamentally because we're materially poor or because we don't have enough education or health, but we're poor because of our sin, our rebellion against God. And what we need most of all, above all, is salvation from God's wrathful judgment, a judgment that is coming, will come at the end of the age. So this is why when Jesus, having been crucified for the sins of the world, having risen again to life, he commissions the apostles, Luke chapter 24, verse verse 47, he commissions them to proclaim this, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the ultimate problem that Jesus came to save and deliver the world from is our sin before a holy God. And this is why he commissions and sends the apostles and then the church in Acts to proclaim the gospel, a good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So interestingly, in the gospels, we have no evidence of Jesus trying to change the political powers of his time, the Roman Empire, or even the Jewish nation. And we don't see the apostles doing such things in the book of Acts. Their focus is on the salvation of sinners through faith in the gospel message. That's what they devote themselves to, preaching the word, not direct political action. So for my answer so far, it would seem then that I side with those who see the mission of Jesus primarily future-oriented towards his eternal spiritual kingdom, and rather than focused on this age, this world now. But before I say totally yes and amen, I want to make a few points of qualification. And again, I commend this to you. You search the scriptures, wrestle with these difficult questions yourself. So three points. First, while the gospel message is for all sinners, it is often the materially, the socially poor who are most responsive. This is an important point that Luke emphasizes throughout his gospel. And we even see it very plainly in how it's Galilean fishermen, very average people that Jesus chooses to be the pillars of his church. Not the rich landed elite, not the religious leaders in Jerusalem, poor or simple Galilean fishermen. And to this day, it's often the materially, the socially poor, the outcasts who respond most favorably to Jesus' message. Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. So while the gospel declares an eternal spiritual salvation from sin for all who repent, it's often the poor and excluded in this world that respond with greater eagerness, readiness. And I think we see that in Luke, and Luke draws that out. Second point, it's undeniable that this gospel message, as it's received by peoples and by nations, has transformed them throughout history. The gospel has the power not only to transform individuals, but even societies themselves. In fact, such transformation is what the gospel demands. John the Baptist 
In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, as the crowds came out to him to be baptized, he said this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he goes on to call soldiers not to use their power unjustly, calls people to give freely to the poor in their midst, right? So the gospel, as it's truly received in faith, will change us and change a whole society if many turn to Christ. It will make us more just, more righteous, more loving, more humble in the way that we live our lives. So Jesus and the apostles, even though we don't see them directly taking on the Roman Empire or the Jewish nation in political action, they proclaimed a gospel that completely transformed the Roman Empire over the period of centuries and then went on and changed barbarian peoples who took over the Roman Empire. And so indirectly, at the very least, Jesus' mission and his gospel changes people for the better and can change whole societies. And then a third point. Jesus, while Jesus and the apostles don't give a command for the rich to give up their lands and their wealth to redistribute and economic justice, the transforming power of the gospel is such that we see that those who truly believe Jesus are freed from a love of this world. They're freed from the love of money, and they often give their riches and wealth freely. And Luke captures this powerfully in the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his home. He welcomes Jesus into his life and faith. And the evidence of that is he gives up half of his wealth for the poor. As you go into the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, we see early followers of Jesus bringing everything they have, laying it at the apostles' feet, and then they cared for the poor in their midst, and they used it to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, while there's no mandates to do what Moses commanded in the law, we see that as people trust in Jesus, are filled with the Spirit, as they repent, they begin to live lives that meet the commands of the Mosaic Covenant. They begin to live loving, uh, just lives. They care for the poor and for those in need in their midst. So there's a start to an answer of some of these difficult questions, but questions that I think come right out of the text. And again, I commend it to you to keep thinking over these important questions. Well, this leads us to the hometown response, right? In the remaining verses of this passage, uh, verses 22 through 27, we see how the crowds in Jesus' hometown respond to him. And it's in two parts. Sorry, I said that wrongly. The first part, verses 22 through 27, and then the second part is verses 28 through 30. So let's look at this first response, the first part of the response, verses 22 through 27. Well, initially, the response to Jesus is actually quite favorable. You see that? They all spoke well of him, and they marveled at his words. But this then turns to a question, and a question that has the seeds of doubt, suspicion within it. You can feel it almost as you read it. Is not this Joseph's son? So in the following verses, up to verse 27, we read Jesus' response to this cynical question posed by those in his hometown. 
And he responds with two sayings. The first one comes in verse 23. Jesus says, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Jesus knows that those in his hometown, they're all too familiar with him. They will treat him not as the spirit-anointed prophet Messiah of God that he is, but as a sort of hometown hero who will do their bidding. They presume that because they're familiar with him, they will have a special access to his miraculous powers. And ultimately, they will show they're not really interested in Jesus for who he is, but what he can do for them. They want the special perks that he gives, but without the faith, the obedience, the devotion that he demands as the Son of God. And this leads then to the second saying of Jesus that he quotes to the hometown crowd. It says in verse 24, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Again, those in his hometown are just too familiar with him. But they're not familiar with him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, but simply as Joseph's son, as Mary's boy, one of the hometown boys. Familiarity with Jesus has bred contempt for him in their hearts. And so with hard hearts, they're going to reject him as the prophet, the son of God that he is. And Jesus then goes on to explain, verses 25 and 27, how his ministry is going to unfold as we move further into the book of Luke and then into Acts. Jesus says his ministry is going to be like that of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah proclaimed God's judgment over Israel in a famine, and then God sent him not to a widow in Israel to care for her, but to a widow, a Gentile woman in modern-day Lebanon. And Elisha, who proclaimed God's rebuke against the nation of Israel, Elisha healed a leper from Syria, a military commander, the enemy. God had him heal this man and none of the lepers in Israel. So this is an indication how it's going to be the Gentile nations, the Gentile peoples that are going to be most eager, most ready to receive Jesus and his message. And as we, look, as we zoom out from Luke chapter 4, that's exactly what we see happening in the rest of Luke's account, particularly in the book of Acts. Well, this leads then to the second part of the hometown response, verses 28 through 30. Jesus' response to the question they posed, is not this Joseph's son, has struck a chord among those in his hometown, right? And it says in verse 28 that they were so offended by what Jesus said that they were filled with wrath. And immediately they reject him, they drive him out of town, but not only this, they drive him to the edge of a cliff ready to kill him, ready to throw him down. This is striking, isn't it? Amazing. What made them so angry? Is it the fact that Jesus is not merely the son of Mary and Joseph, but the son of God himself? Or is it the truth that his mission, his message, is going to find its greatest reception not among his own people, 
but among, among the outcasts, among Gentiles, among the nations of the earth. Of course, it's likely both. They rejected him for who he was, who he is, and they rejected his mission, his mission of mercy, compassion to those on the periphery. So Luke ends his account of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth in the most casual manner. You can see it in verse 30, right? While the crowd sought to kill Jesus, Jesus passed through their midst and went on his way. Isn't that amazing? Eventually, of course, Jesus' nation are going to get their hands on him, and they will, according to God's sovereign design and plan, put him to death. They will crucify him. But we know, ultimately, Jesus is crucified for the sins of the world, for our sins, that we might not die in our sins, but have eternal life through faith in his name. So Jesus, to this day, is seeking and saving the lost through the gospel message as it's proclaimed, as it's made known. Well, in closing... I want to draw out three points of application for us from this passage. And I, I make these points of application by viewing ourselves in the place of those in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. I assume that most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So we're part of God's amazing mercy to the Gentiles. Praise God. But I assume also that most of us, many of us, have been Christians for quite some years, maybe decades and have likely maybe grown up in Christian homes. So in this way, we're like those in Jesus' hometown. We might be very familiar with Jesus. And so this passage presents us with two warnings that I see and a reason for rejoicing. So first warning, be careful that familiarity with Jesus does not breed apathy in your heart, or worse, contempt towards Jesus, right? Those in Nazareth assume that because they knew Jesus as their hometown boy, that he was on their side. He was for them. They weren't ready to receive him as he came back in the power of the Spirit as the Son of God and proclaimed the word of God to him. So no matter how well we might know Jesus or think we know him, we need to keep encountering him again and again and again. And how does that happen? Well, it's not rocket science. It happens in the word of God. Jesus opened the scriptures. He read from Isaiah. He proclaimed who he was from the scriptures. So we need to be daily seeking and pursuing Jesus in the scriptures and ready to be, be surprised. Be careful of that assumptions, those assumptions that we bring to Jesus. So let's keep seeking Jesus with fresh expectation in his word. And a second warning. We need to be careful of confusing Jesus' mission with our own personal agendas and desires. Those in Nazareth were interested in Jesus' miracles and what he might do for them personally, individually. But Jesus' mission, his work, is far bigger than our mundane domestic wish list that we bring to him, right? He's bigger than our Amazon Prime wish list. Truly, God cares about our personal needs, right? He clothes the grass of the field. 
He feeds the birds of the air. How much more will he not care for you, his child? But must seek first his kingdom. His mission is bigger than our personal wishes and desires, our worldly dreams. Secondly, must be careful that we don't confuse Jesus' mission with our own political agendas. And this is true wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum. It doesn't matter. Jesus was a terrible politician. He could have easily ridden the wave of popular support and won a massive political victory. And we see that. The Gospels are written in such a way that we can see Jesus very easily could have taken worldly power. But he didn't, right? Jesus, we find him crucified alone on a tree, despised by everyone, because his kingdom is not of this world. So we need to be very careful that our political agenda, dreams, desires, we don't confuse that and equate that with Jesus' mission. And again, that's not to say we shouldn't be involved politically, that we shouldn't care for this nation and pray for it. We should, but we must recognize that Jesus' mission is bigger and goes beyond even our greatest hopes and dreams for this nation. And a third point, and I close with this, reason for rejoicing. To this very day, Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And we can rejoice that it's often the forgotten, the poor, the most despised. It's in the most unlikely of places where God is at work through this day to reach people for himself, to save them from their sin. That's why I began my message this morning with this story about migrant laborers in the hundreds, perhaps in the thousands, turning to Christ in the Gulf. It's easy to be despairing these days about Christianity in this nation, about the state of the church in the United States and Europe. But if we open our eyes, if we do a little bit of research, we're going to see that the church of Christ is growing like never before in places in Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America. The center of gravity in the church has shifted. It's shifted towards Africa and Asia. And this is something we can rejoice in because ultimately we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we can rejoice that God continues to move and work powerfully among the nations. His gospel is advancing to this day. And we can rejoice in that even as we pray for a fresh outpouring of his spirit upon us here in this nation. Let me close us with prayer. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Praise you as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. And Father, we do rejoice in how your name continues to be praised and hallowed all throughout the earth. Your kingdom continues to come with greater power. And Lord, we thank you, just as you promised, Jesus, you will build your church to the very end, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Lord, give us hearts that are ready to again and again 
hear from Jesus, encounter him in your word. Give us humble hearts that are ready to receive those words of rebuke and correction. Give us hearts that are ready to receive afresh the promises of Christ and to go out into this world with greater joy, greater hope, greater love and boldness. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Even today we ask, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.